Hi everyone, I'm Delisa. And I'm your co-host, Elizabeth Muller. And today we're going to be spilling the tea on accessibility, disability as a grad student with Shohini. So stay tuned, sit back, and get ready to sip on some hot tea. So hello, Shohini. We're really excited that you're here today. Thank you for coming on our podcast. Just to start... Yeah, just to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your academic studies, what brought you to Western, all that good stuff? Great. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Um, so I am a second year PhD student in gender, sexuality and women's studies at Western. Um, I work on trans and queer activism, resistance movements in South Asia and critical disability studies. Um, I previously studied international relations for uh, my master's, and then I sort of uh, switched gears and thought that an interdisciplinary academic environment would be um, ideal for me to pursue my cross-disciplinary interests. So that's how I decided to uh, pursue my uh, graduate studies at Western, um, GSWS. And, um, since coming here, I have been able to explore interests that I did not have the critical tools to sort of um, go through and, and um, work on. So I'm really glad to have this opportunity um, here to do the kind of cross-disciplinary research that really interests me. Um, apart from uh, what I do for uh, my PhD, I am currently co-editing a, a volume on um, feminist resistance. Um, it is going to take me a, a couple of months to sort of um, get it out into the world. Um, and it's it's a project that's really close to my heart. I've been thinking about it since 2017. Um, so yeah, that's something that's um, really interests me and, and something I'm doing right now. And apart from that, I, I have actually um, worked as an editor for nearly seven years now. I have worked um, for Hysteria, which is a feminism, radicalism, periodical and activist platform, which was started by uh, um, by graduate students at um, the School of Oriental and African um, Studies. Um, apart from that, I now um, also work as an editor for um, E-International Relations, which is a digital publication. Um, so that that's what keeps me occupied and i'm also invested in advocacy at western and and that's sort of um what i have been trying to do um with my time you mentioned something that i'm curious about you said feminism and resistance and tr uh, queer and trans spaces of resistance i'm just wondering if you can unpack that for us a little bit Right. So, um, so I sort of, um, conceived of this book on feminist resistance to archive the, the daily, everyday ways in, in which we enact resistance. Um, so those of us who are variously marginalized, um, the way we go through this world and the way we negotiate sort of, um, 
negotiate with with the the world, establish our boundaries. All of it is uh, determined by um, resistance strategies. Um, and I wanted to create a, a book that um, really archives those those practices and those strategies that makes us who we are. That uh, brings us closer to feminisms that um, tells us what it means to enact um, feminist resistance in the everyday. So um, so I am hoping to, to see that book out into the world um, sooner than later. And um, since uh, a lot of my work also is oriented towards understanding the everyday and understanding what we do as people uh, in the everyday, uh, in, in confronting not only the structural, but uh, also understanding how the interpersonal and the structural interact and what that means for us and what that means for our feminist ethics and what what that means for um, our sort of interaction with with um, feminist politics. That is of interest to me uh, personally, politically, intellectually. Um, and I have um, been wanting to sort of um, devote my time and energy into bringing uh, variously marginalized people together who could uh, tell their stories in their in their own voice. Um, and the book precisely does that. It is um, not strictly um, an sort of an, an academic intervention, even though it is academic and it is written, um, the chapters are by those in academia, um, but it also, tells us stories about um, our lives beyond academia. It, it tells um, us um, stories about um, what it means for us to inhabit our identities, what it means for us to um, think about our being and becoming in the everyday. And the stories that we get to know about, about um, about the beauty of this life when when it's confronted, when it is confronted with structural challenges, but also the ways in which we overcome those challenges and, and what we can achieve owing to that. Um, so in in order to create that archive, I think I've been thinking about um, this for the for the longest um, time. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. So I know you talked about uh, challenges as one of the components. Um, so we hear you've recently traveled to London for school. Can you share a bit about your journey here and any obstacles that you faced? Yeah, of course. Um, so I traveled to London, Ontario at a time when direct flights were banned um, from India to Canada. Um, what that presented was um, quite a few obstacles in, in, in terms of um, having to plan a longer journey, um, making sure that there are funds at your disposal to undertake that journey. Um, and those of us who are privileged in, in terms of um, caste in India probably can afford to undertake uh, those sort of um, those uh, international um, journeys of it's, it's kind of a privileged mobility. But I, when I was, um, uh, when I was traveling, it it occurred to me that this would not have been possible for many 
of um, many people with without cl uh, class and caste privileges in India, those who live with disabilities, they probably would not, who are triply marginalized, probably would not have been able to undertake um, this journey. Um, primarily because um, I, I traveled through several cities and several countries to, to make this journey possible. Um, and also the uncertainty of, of not knowing what to expect. I remember um, getting down at, at a certain airport in a certain country. I'm not going to name the country because I, I don't want it, this to be sort of orientalist kind of a discourse about, um, oh, we are better and, and they're not. So I, I won't name the, the um, region, but um, we, we did not know what to expect. Um, so we were um, asked to undergo certain tests at the airport, and we were not told by anybody that we would be required to to undergo this test. And it cost us um, some money, and it, it was not inexpensive. And the entire time I was thinking, this is again, um, not only is it, um, it, it it's ableist, um, but it's also so classist in, in very many ways um, because we were expected to have those funds at our disposal. Um, and, and I was also wondering if we would be deported if we tested positive at the airport. Um, I later learned that if, if we did, we would be asked to quarantine for um, two weeks uh, in, in a country we knew nothing about and um, I, I was thinking as as a, a queer woman, um, how would I sort of live alone uh, in in a country I I I didn't I I knew nothing about. Um, so the uncertainty of it was was the biggest challenge. I think information um, is not not made accessible, um, and it's so critical for for those of us living with disabilities to know what to expect so that we can plan accordingly. Um, I think that was one of definitely one of the biggest um, challenges, uh, the unpredictability of of that journey, and also um, physically, it it was um, it it was a long, difficult journey, and. Um, I, I don't know how, if it would have been uh, possible for me to do it had had um, had um, circumstances would have been different um, if if my abilities did not permit me to undertake that journey. I, I don't know what I would have done. Um, so uh, in in terms of traveling from India to Canada, I, I would say it did take um, a lot of privilege in terms of just being able to do what was expected of me as per the norms of the places where I, I uh, was and uh, where I traveled through. But um, then it, it sort of makes you think if mobility is about privilege, who is being left behind um, and who's being excluded from, from undertaking these journeys and, and what stories that uh, that exclusion tells. You've mentioned something I want to back to. You've talked about privilege and mobility, and I'm just wondering if you can share a little bit about 
your reflections around privilege and what that meant when you were traveling and how that how that privilege sort of looked in in your case like what did that privilege sort of look and feel like yeah um i think one of the privileges that that definitely enabled me to undertake this journey as well as one of my friends who was traveling with me both of us i think come from embodied caste privilege so we we are both upper caste um middle class so i i wonder if we would have even had the opportunity to to study in in north american universities if we did not have those privileges and i'm very cognizant of that um and i i think sometimes when when we undertake these journeys we we forget how much privilege it really takes to 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 do this um even though we are um, by by no means sort of rich um it it still took so much to be able to um just move across the the border um it, it also tells me uh, the the value of cultural capital um the fact that we could navigate this very complicated journey my friend had an agent who helped us um get here from india the fact that um this agent was uh, also very well versed in in how international students should navigate this uh says that uh we we did have access to networks that those without privileges um do not uh have um and um i i really wondered if if this journey would have been possible uh without without those um networks without access to um the privileges the the sort of relative um privilege that that we do embody because then again um it, it's we we are marginalized in in different ways right but then there are certain things that also enable us to to undertake certain things uh, undertake certain journeys or uh, do certain things which um which become really critical in in how we present ourselves and and how we um sort of um assert our existence really yeah yeah i think that's a great point you made and it gives such deep insight into the process of traveling to Canada as an international student in the midst of covid which i think a lot of canadian students um take for granted because that's obviously a process that i myself have never considered so i really appreciate you sharing that experience so we wanted to move on to a similar topic um what barriers do you feel that you face specifically as an international student with a disability on western's campus right so um first of all as an international student there is you're always trying to figure out the cultural difference um that's sort of been i think one of my biggest learnings here to understand um to understand really how 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 difference can be desirable and how difference can also be undesirable um so for example if if i needed a uh, a day off um i from from my classes um i did not know if it was acceptable to ask um ask to to not attend and um 
whether that would uh, reflect poorly on on me um now that information is not made available so we don't know um if if that's we don't know how to approach professors and and ask for extensions or ask for um leaves um so it's i i did feel that um having more information having more clarity getting acquainted with sort of the cultural codes of um of this um uh, would have helped um so i yeah that's something that i've also sort of um thought about communicating in in different ways so as an international student i have had to um also also sort of disclose um challenges so that it it um it became easier for me to um to just go and and do things um as per my comfort um and but i realized that disclosure is is dangerous and it renders international students particularly racialized students vulnerable um so there is a, a lot of pressure on us to constantly prove ourselves to um to um put in a great deal of effort to um establish the fact that we deserve to be here um and what happens when a student with a disability is is it does not sort of meet the normative standards um that are there um to sort of make it easier for non disabled people to function and it's 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 not sort of created keeping disabled people in mind so um so how does an international student really deal with that is has always been um my um question really um i have also felt that and and this is not something that i've personally experienced but because i've worked in advocacy um and i and i work in advocacy um is what i have realized is that when we organize events and and i've done this myself as well um is that we always have asl interpreters on on board not always but when the fund allows it um and i have wondered if asl is accessible to many international students i imagine it is perhaps not and what we can do better to uh, ensure that um we we um take an equitable approach and we take all our differences into account when when we think about accessibility uh when we talk about accessibility um that's what i i have also been thinking and um another thing that that has sort of um made me think about access uh, the most in in the recent past uh is related to um housing so what happens when international students enter into private agreements and i've heard that provincial <clears throat> rental laws in ontario do not apply to um private agreements between say a main tenant and someone who's uh who's subleasing um or in in a sublet sort of a situation what happens then so does that um render disabled students far more precarious um what happens when uh, your your flatmates expect a certain um 
certain level of of um, certain level of ability that that you you just can't meet um and there's absolutely i know many international students including myself um i have entered into agreements before coming here so i have entered into rental agreements um without knowing anything and and it's been a um, searching in the dark kind of a situation and um since there are no laws uh, protecting us what happens is that you're at the mercy of strangers and this becomes even more difficult um uh for you to negotiate uh with the, the terms of these agreements when you are an international student when you're racialized when you're disabled when you're queer when you're trans it's just it's just your precarity intensifies um and um in the absence of laws protecting uh disabled uh students um it it just becomes about the kindness of the other person and and that's sort of a dangerous demonstration because um it's that's not how rights politics or access um or disability justice should be imagined that's not how equity should be imagined it's 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 about kindness in 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 the day to day uh, as well but it's there are big structural changes that's that's required to protect international students in terms of housing and making sure that they have um their uh, basic needs met um so there are hosts sort of of factors um that come into play when when you come here and and embody various marginalized uh, identities and um and uh, sort of have to learn to negotiate um the the terms of living and and being really a new in 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 a new country yeah so i can imagine that can be quite difficult and i know you mentioned you know the burden of having to prove yourself as an international student and i feel that in our previous episodes we've talked about this with students with disabilities and just the feeling of needing to prove or validate your need for accommodations and that the money that the university is spending on your accommodations is worthwhile so as an international student with a disability how do you balance this so-called burden that isn't necessarily explicit but sometimes implicit um especially in light of things such as imposter syndrome i often feel that um it's sometimes if you are an international student if you're racialized if you live with a disability you have to um constantly sort of super grip yourself because that's the only way you survive that's the only way you um gain recognition for for your effort and i think the expectation to sort of uh super gripping ourselves is is very much a reality that accompanies um us as we move through our graduate life um i i do feel uh, that um the burden to constantly do well the burden to constantly achieve the burden to constantly sort of um outperform if if that sort of neoliberal discourse uh, makes sense is um a lot for students with disabilities to live with and and also just disclosing the fact 
fact that you're disabled is, is a huge risk um, to so many of us. Um, are you going to be denied um, an opportunity if, if, if you're red or if you're, um, if you're known to be disabled? Um, are you are you not going to be a desirable candidate even if you are very qualified to do a, a certain job? Are you going to be hired for it? So those kinds of questions um, come to mind um, because um, it's sometimes I wonder even if even if your your academic sort of credentials and and your work. Um, looks absolutely perfect on paper um, because knowing that you live with disabilities um, could sort of um, could um, present you as as a burden to those in to those sort of um, to the powers that be um, I I, I do feel that we need uh, a culture and, and we need, need big structural changes where whenever we are um, posting or um, posting job ads, we specifically mention that we, um, we want to hire uh, students living with disabilities um, and international students can't work uh, beyond a certain time frame, so um, so there's there's that restriction as well. But to just make sure, making sure that um, it's disabled students know that they're welcome is is a huge sort of trans transformative um, uh, approach to to inclusion. Um, and I and I do hope to see that at at some point because I uh, I have worked with um, disabled scholar activists for a, a very long time now and I know that um, there's exceptional talent um, experiential knowledge there's amazing wisdom that uh, any organization any company would be so um, fortunate to to um, to learn from, to draw on. And I, I hope to see that happening. Um, I, I hope to see more disabled students taking up space, uh, being encouraged to take up space. Um, I hope to see our difference not be rendered so undesirable in the everyday. Um, that's my hope. I think with with um, a, a cultural change, uh, where uh, a cultural change that um, is is cognizant of of the necessity of that kind of um, inclusion, is um, is going to be critical to to our well being. So you know, what do you, what are some things that you think we can do as students on campus to support um, international students with disabilities, you know, specifically as advocates to address these barriers that you've mentioned that students are, are facing? Right. Um, I, I think that, first of all, we need to um, have students um, living with disabilities um, be heard. I often feel that we are not heard in, in many ways. And sometimes um, 
sometimes in in advocacy spaces what happens is that um, norms become more important than people especially disabled people who who come with various challenges and and are come up against various challenges um i do believe that for advocacy in particular to to work we need to humanize the process of advocacy itself and then when when advocacy spaces have been sufficiently humanized we need to um we need to really um have these conversations that we are having today uh, with students living with disabilities and know what what knowledge they um, are, are bringing from their specific locations. Um, I think homogeneity is, is perhaps our biggest enemy. Um, we need to, in, in, in order to think of access as an equity issue, we need to um, have dialogues with each other and, and also be really mindful of the intersections um, that are often ignored, like um, such as, um, someone who's who's queer and lives with a disability, someone who's trans and lives with a disability, someone who's working class and lives with a disability. Um, I think sometimes those intersections are forgotten and we, we think about access in a very homogeneous um, way. Um, and I, I think that happens because even though variously marginalized disabled people exist, we are not afforded the privilege to be visible because uh, disclosure is so, so dangerous and, and so tricky for so many of us. Um, and, and also the fact that um, disability has, disability justice movement and advocacy has not been sort of glamorized in, in ways that um, sort of pink capitalism uh, has, has made queer politics out to be, for, for example, right? It's, it's, it's not been so easy to co-opt the disability justice movement as it has been for, for other progressive movements. Um, so the, the plus side to it is that it's, it, it can still sort of resist the, the neoliberal seduction of um, assimilation um, but at the same time we are sort of minoritized among the marginalized um, we do not get to take take up space because our our difference is seen as undesirable we are not given sort of the 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 kind of um space that we deserve from where we can assert um, the value and the meaning that we that we bring. I think advocacy can only um, bring an enduring change when we are willing to center disabled people and um, learn from their um, wisdom, learn from their uh, negotiations with with um, with the political. Um, I often feel that um, since we are minoritized even in advocacy spaces, um, the rules that we are asked to follow were, were not made by us. They were made by uh, cishet, um, non-disabled um, people. So I think that poses a, a great risk. I think in, in order for advocacy to really work and, and to really uh, do something transformative, um, we need to 
make sure that um, we become key players. And sometimes the onus is, most of the time, the onus is the false on cishet non-disabled people to make that space for us and to really get comfortable with us taking up space. Um, I think you've mentioned so many great points. And I know you mentioned, you know, the importance of including students with disabilities and making sure that they are seen. So I know you've mentioned you're involved with various things on campus and we were wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, so I, um, until recently served as chair of the accessibility committee at SOX. Um, it was an ad hoc committee. Um, and I currently work as gender equity officer for PSAC Local 6110, which is the um, union for teaching assistants and postdoctoral scholars at Western. So uh, one of my primary goals uh, has been to push for, in the recent past, has been to push for food accessibility. I know there are many um, chronically ill um, disabled students who, who cannot, um, partake in in social gatherings or, or participate in the same way um, as their non-disabled counterparts because uh, food is not accessible to them. So food accessibility has been one of my pushing for food accessibility has been one of my primary goals. Um, I also feel that just um, just the fact that um, graduate student life heavily depends on networking. Um, when uh, disabled graduate students cannot get together um, in 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 a sort of a social situation where they can um, they have access to the food that they need, it it can really be a, a huge disadvantage and it can be a huge challenge. So um, in in order to make um, it easier for for chronically ill disabled students to um, have a better chance at at um, at networking or, or getting to know students, find community. I have uh, been trying to push for food accessibility. Apart from this, I have um, spoken to various uh, key players and emphasized the need for better mental health plans. So when I was in India, I remember um, there were, I, I was going through the list of sort of international um, uh, the list of countries where the international student plan was not applicable. And, and I wondered what happens to international students who are in, in those countries during COVID times and how uh, were they accessing um, um, therapy or, or um, the assistance sort of they needed to, to go through life. And again, if, if, if these services are, are sometimes not made available, it again uh, comes down to privilege. Um, some people will be able to access therapy and some won't be. And I, I have also emphasized the need to have um, racialized queer and trans therapists so that um, neurodivergent um, students or, or students living with various disabilities who are also marginalized in, in other ways can have, um, have support that are designed to suit their needs. Um, uh, it's it's um, it's a long shot. Um, we know that it's it's going to take a lot long time for us to see these 
changes um, happening. Um, but I I do believe there's willingness. It's it's possible. Um, apart apart from that, I um, on campus what I've been trying to do is really um, make sure that um, disabled people have a voice. So I've organized panels. I've had. Um, disabled students um, talk about their experiences and what it means to what it means to be um, disabled and and a graduate student at the same time are you expected to be a graduate student first and a disabled person second so those kinds of um, those kinds of realities um, were were talked about um, during that panel and, and and I'm so glad that those spaces um, were um could be created and that we could all get together and and really dream of an equitable society um together i have also tried to um not homogenize um, um disabled people's realities so i have um I have because our 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 community, uh, our communities are are very diverse. Um, there are communities within communities within communities, and that's the beauty of it. Um, so uh, the the conversations that I've had with uh, people who are queer and disabled, people who are trans and disabled, people who are racialized and disabled, all of their re realities converge, but also diverge in so many ways, and. Um, I've been trying to sort of um, trying to pay attention to to the intersections of of these um, identities, and um, I I know this for a fact that uh, none of us working in advocacy spaces um, can achieve this single handedly. It because there are structural barriers. There, there there's so much that needs to be done that is really beyond our ken. But um, what what has really made an impact um, on me personally is is the fact that I've seen the the amount of uh, I've seen the intensity with which um, disabled scholar advocates advocate it's it's taken a, a lot out of us in in seeking that that kind of justice in 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 those moments but it's also told me there's value in that there's value in that resistance there's value in us being able to advocate for ourselves and and really embody a, a kind of defiance that's going to uh, help us um, envision uh, the the society that we want to be a part of, and also encourage other disabled scholar advocates to be, um, despite the odds, to carry on uh, despite um, there being challenges and and there being um, these barriers that we'll always come up against. But it's it's definitely reassuring to know that that we are here and we are in this together and we do the best that we can. So I, I know um, from doing a little bit of research that international students are not permitted to apply for the same grants as domestic students. So can you comment a little bit about that and maybe just share a little bit about some of the grants you might know of that an international student can apply to? Um, I I think we we cannot apply to Shark. We cannot apply to a, a few other um, grants. Um, 
international students can apply for OGS. Um, they can apply for Vanier. Um, I think they can apply for Trudeau. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, so, but with OGS, there's there's this thing that there are only eight OGS that are uh, that international students uh, at Western can can have. So only only eight international students will be awarded OGS every every year. Um, so that's uh, one of the scholarships I know of. For Indian students in particular, there is one scholarship called the Pradeep Khare Memorial Scholarship, which is awarded by the Khare family and IC Impacts, which international students um, from India can look into. Um, Apart from that, there, there are not many scholarships that or, or grants that I know of. And, and um, when it comes to applying for um, disability um, scholarships or um, scholarships for disabled students, I don't know if international students can apply for those scholarships. And, and um, so how can an international student um, living with disabilities um, think of think of um, accessing um, accessing these grants is is one that that's that's not um, uncomplicated so um, yeah I, I do feel that it's it's harder for international students to apply to to many of these scholarships um, yeah yeah I guess that's my short answer. Thank you so much for sharing. So just as we wrap up the podcast, I know you mentioned supports with funding, but do you have any general advice that you would like to offer to international students with disabilities? I, I would just say in, in to make life easier in a day-to-day -day, um, sense, find your people, <laughs> find, um, find your friends. Um, they, they'll bring you a, a lot of comfort. I I do not think I've, I would have um, survived if I did not have um, disabled friends who, who make such a huge difference to my life. Um, I had to move houses recently and one of my friends who, who also lives with a disability, um, they were there the entire, the entire time, they helped me out and, and that's what, community to me really means um, finding people who are always going to be there for you, um, finding people who, who are going to listen, to understand, and offer support. Um, I would say proactively reach out um, to people. I know information is, is not easily available as to what you can um, do to, to make your life a little bit easier as an international student living with disabilities. Um, so my suggestion would be to constantly, um, I, I know it's exhausting. I know it's um, emotional labor. Um, I wish things were different, but since um, this is what uh, our, our reality is, um, our, what we can do is find out people who are invested in um, in disability advocacy, find out people who have lived experience of navigating um, barriers. They'll tell you how, what to do and, and how to, um, 
how to go about doing things that that um that make your your day to day uh, a little bit easier i have i think i i owe a great deal to uh, my friends who have been there for me and have listened and have understood and and most of them live with disabilities um and they understand they understand what it me means to be on crip time they understand what it means um to to um to let to go of um assumptions about the normative being always right assumptions about the normative being um ethical um i i think i think building a support system that that um makes the claims that you want to make having a support system uh that resists with you when you when you need to resist when you need to enact resistance is very very important um i i would encourage um international students living with disabilities to to find their communities of solidarity find their communities of resistance and to always reach out for support not all of us have all the right answers but we we have lived experience and we speak from experience and we can um offer suggestions that that probably um can help you think about or or rethink um some of the ways in which um this life this graduate life and and this life as a, a marginalized and variously marginalized disabled person uh, can be made a, a little bit easier um yeah i, I guess that that's what uh, my suggestion would be. That's great. You've given us so much to think about today. And it's really wonderful to be recording this with you on International Day of Persons with Disabilities. What a special thing to be able to hear your disabled wisdom, your experiential knowledge, to bring in disability justice and what that looks like in the radical advocacy and activism space. And thank you so much for sitting down with us today and, and gifting us with an hour of your time. Thank you so much. This was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap. Thank you for listening to our episode of Accessibility with Shohini. Stay tuned for our next podcast episode.